Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Greg Logan, Managing Director of RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Rex Jensen, President and CEO of Schrader Manatee Ranch, one of the nation's most successful master plan community developers, and they've been engaged for many years in other businesses as well, and we'll learn more about that during the podcast. Schrader Manatee Ranch is the parent company of Lakewood Ranch, a 31,000-acre master plan community located in Manatee and Sarasota counties in southwest Florida. SMR transitioned into community development in February of 1994, and today Lakewood Ranch is home to over 36,000 residents and 16,000 jobs. The community features vibrant town centers, A-rated schools, the Lakewood Ranch Medical Center, Lakewood Ranch Golf and Country Club, Premier Sports Campus, and much more. Rex Jensen, thanks so much for taking the time to be part of our podcast series. Thank you, Greg. Rex, I believe I first met you when we were retained following the recession to do some market analysis work, but I was very pleased that I got to know you a little bit better more recently working on Waterside Place. And I have to say, I've been impressed by your leadership at Lake, Lakewood Ranch, the way that you've continued to innovate a project that's been there for a long time, but it's still very fresh. You've got you know some new creative retail, new employment centers, new residential neighborhoods, and your innovation seems to be paying off with the results, with Lakewood Ranch being mo- one of the most successful large-scale communities in the country. And your background in particular is interesting to me because I understand that you didn't initially start off moving in a real estate direction, that uh, coming out of school, you initially were a lawyer. How does uh, somebody with that kind of background gravitate towards real estate? Well, it's a pretty easy transition. And yes, I am a lawyer by background, but if you don't hold that against me, we can continue the interview. I am reformed and certainly cured. Basically, in law school, I was too naive to know that freshman law students didn't get internship jobs in law firms. Usually that was reserved for junior and senior level students. So I was knocking on doors and met a person who had a venture capital law firm that also did some corporate tax, some technology transfer, and some, strangely enough, entertainment law and some real estate. And had an interview. He said, I don't want to hire you because I don't want a law firm. I persuaded him to hire me. I don't know how, but he did. And in the course of those years in law school and three years following, I got exposed to real estate projects. And I didn't enjoy selling my time an hour at a time. I liked the idea better of working as a principal in a project. And with real estate, there are so many ways of creating adding value, providing lift, that I fell in love with it and have done it ever since. Where did you start in law? You were in Michigan, right? You're a, uh, I guess it's the Michigan Spartans? Well, no, that was my undergraduate degree, but there I viewed that as a, a necessary gateway to get into law school and studied political science, economics, and history that degree being good for either law school or dishwashing. Fortunately, I got into law school. But then I went to Ann Arbor, and one of the first, or the first project that I was involved in from a real estate standpoint was to gain the approval of a project which basically covers the entire east side of Ann Arbor, and it was called the Ann Arbor Technology Park. So that was my first project, and and the exercise of gaining the entitlements 
negotiating with local government, negotiating with the buyers. It was very heady for somebody who really hadn't even gotten out of law school. Like I say, it, it just naturally seemed to attract me and my skill set. Well, you have to admit that going from whatever level of real estate activity to you know, something as large as Schrader Manatee Ranch is a pretty big jump. How, how did you come to be hired by uh, Schrader Manatee? Well, I had a prior life after Ann Arbor in Tampa, Florida, which is just about 40 minutes away from here. And I had a series of projects. And then uh, after my financing of my partner failed, I basically had a choice of being out on the street or still earning a living. And I formed my own consulting company and had, uh, I don't know, probably 15 to 18 nice clients up in Tampa, one of which was the city of Tampa. And I worked with them to annex 40 square miles into their property, got exposed to planning large tracks, looking at how one would provide infrastructure to it, what kind of carrying capacity the property would have, and basically everything from University of South Florida to the county line, essentially, is now in the city of Tampa, and I participated in doing that. At any rate, the word seemed to get around, and about that time, late 80s, early 90s, this company was looking for someone to assist them in figuring out what to do with this very large, very valuable asset. And I was on the list of people that they interviewed and ended up getting selected for the job. I've been here ever since. Why do you think they selected you? How did you beat out the other candidates? I mean, to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> On the first contact I had, I actually had laryngitis. And I got this call from Mr. Clark, who was my predecessor. And I had, like I said, I had laryngitis and I sounded probably a little worse than Andy Devine. And <laughs> I doubt he being uh, the proper British type probably didn't even understand me, but we could communicate enough that we set a future appointment. I came down, interviewed. That first meeting, I told them that I really wasn't interested in working for anybody, that I really enjoyed what I was doing. But if they wanted me in a consulting relationship, I'd be happy to work that way. So mm -hmm. we parted company. And on the hour-long drive home, I started to kick myself. Because when you look at this property on a map, you re I, at least, my personality type sees nothing but potential in it. So I got home and I started typing a seven-page letter that basically said, look, I know I told you that I wasn't interested in employment, but I'm beginning to reconsider that. And if there's still an opportunity to talk, these are the kinds of things that I think we might do. And maybe it was that letter that tipped and I don't know. That's great. Well, I want to come back to that because I think there's a theme of innovation there that I touched on at the intro that I think is very interesting and interesting to people and, and helps explain the success and, and the growth of Lakewood Ranch. And, and of course, your, your fingers are all over that. How was it, in fact, you know, going from you were running your own show with your own consulting company and then... As I understand, SMR, it's somewhat of a family enterprise. So now you're, you're dealing with a board and, and family members and, and uh, obviously not running your own show. You, you, are, you do seem to have quite a lot of influence and, and latitude there. But ultimately, there is the family sort of looking over your shoulder, I guess. How does that work? How it works is this is a, a company that's pretty easy to work with ownership. We share the same vision started on the same page. As I go to the next mountaintop, they're pretty much there with me. So we make decisions in real time. We The board meets quarterly. I've got to tell you, Greg, in the nearly 30 years and 120 board meetings that I've been in, I have not seen a vote which had dissension in it. It's been consensus. A lot of lively discussion on the way to getting to that consensus, but 
once we're there comes the marching orders and that's what we do. So it's very much, I would say, a participatory process to establish the policies and the direction. And then after that, they've all got their other lives. They see this place four times a year. And it's really not that fraught with conflict. Now, on day one, it was, yes, it was quite an adjustment for me to get used to working in this kind of environment. But when you're in a consulting role, also you're really part of a team. I would think that there are many assignments that you get. You collaborate with many other firms on the same piece of work. So I think viewed through that lens, it's not that big an adjustment. You know, I think the family made it very easy. Just. Well, I want to help our listeners understand just the, the scope of if someone's listening, you're not familiar with, with Lakewood Ranch, this is a big place. And you are, are leading over is quite a diverse range of activities. And I'd like to understand, you know, how, you know, going back 25 years ago to, you know, this sort of being on the on the wrong side of I-75 in Sarasota and really, you know, just kind of getting ramped up. Today, I believe there's 24 uh, existing villages, large-scale residential villages with homes from 200,000 to over 2 million, you know, an average price point of, of about half a million dollars. And for multi-generational communities, you're selling more houses there than any other you know, community, similar large-scale community in the country. When you started out, you know, back 25 years ago, and you're coming into SMR, and and they're involved in a lot of other businesses and agriculture and things like that. What convinced you that creating this, you know, large-scale multi-use community like Lakewood Ranch was a viable opportunity? Well, the assignment was to come in and try to look at this 50 square mile property and add value to it. And if it were a 50 acre postage stamp, that'd be pretty easy. The thing about 50 square miles worth of whatever is that A, it takes a long time to do. B, it probably requires a variety and mix of things to pursue simultaneously to add value to the entire property as opposed to just a small portion of it. But back to your question about the wrong side of I-75, you still have to look at a map and recognize that we are on I-75. Regardless of whether it's right side or wrong side, we're on it. And it was the wrong side in light of the people who grew up here. But someone like you or I who are looking at it from the outside, we might see it in a different way. And I did. Can't look at I-75, which runs from Miami to Canada, for crying out loud, and not recognize four interchanges on it as some form of opportunity over geological time. So I, I guess that really is, is the fundamental thing about property, as the tired old maxim suggests, is that it's location, location, location. And probably after that, it might even be location. This had a good location. But, but, yeah, it is a good location, and, and it is in a you know, growing market in Sarasota. At the same time, it is one of the most successful communities in terms of the annual sales volume. You have the biggest job center there now in, in, in the area. And it's really, you know, truly becoming more of a live-work play community. You've got, you know, great golf courses and, and clubs. And and your next development is just, you know, the next little 5,000-acre piece that you're getting ramped up. So it is big, big scale. I'm just thinking that there had to be a, a vision of that you could really create something special there. You have created something special there. And that had to be harder to see, you know, 25 years ago. It probably had to squint a little bit, I'm thinking. That is squint. And, and frankly, I've still got scars from all of the people who told me how insane you know, we were. One of my best friends looked at me when we first met. And he said, Rex, you're literally insane. And I detest yes people. And he and I have been very good friends ever since that time, because at least here was somebody honest enough to tell me what he really thought. So you said you're crazy and you thought, okay, I must be on the right track. No, I, I didn't know. I guess the question I was getting at is 
thinking that there had to be some vision and maybe you guys did some visioning exercises and clearly some placemaking strategy that, you know, helped contribute to the early success and, and helped start that snowball going. You, you've added to that and you have multiple town centers and, you know, as I said, 24 different communities with sub-neighborhoods within them. I'm guessing there were probably some strategic decisions and investments that you made along the way that helped to build that value and sort of set the stage for future growth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there were a number of those. You know, and go back a heartbeat to your reference to vision. You know, we had Mm -hmm. several alternative plans for the property. And by plans, I don't mean definitive, detailed. I mean roughly what lands make sense to preserve, roughly where would you put the arterial road system? I mean, we're a trans- a, a, an auto-bound society, certainly at that time and even today. And there are things like that that begin to then suggest parcel sizes, land uses, and other relationships once you've, you've gone through that exercise. We had a very detailed inventory of the various characteristics of the property that you normally do in any kind of due diligence study on any piece of property. So we had a lot of information. And we always had some form of overall plan that if this were to develop today, here's what it would look like. Now, none of those plans were ever right. We never actually built anything but pieces of some of them, uh, Mm -hmm. kept modifying things as we went. So we did have plans. We also knew that we needed to make some strategic investments. Some of those boiled down to relatively mundane things like uh, infrastructure, sewer, water, roads, but also schools. Early on in the development of Lakewood Ranch, I attended a meeting of the Sarasota County or Manatee County School Board. And I looked at the board from the dais and I said, you know, I'd really like to kidnap your staff. (laughs) And you could see the eyebrows raise and then look at each other like, what's this guy saying? And, I, and one of the chairmen said, well, what do you mean, Mr. Johnson? And I said, well, your staff has an expertise in terms of knowing by product type what the typical student production rates are. You have an idea of what requirements make sense for well-located school sites. You have an idea of how to provide them, how to finance them. And, and what I would like you to do is not trust me, but just accept what I've got to say, look at this property and develop it mentally with me over the course of three or four days and help me figure out where you would put the various types of schools, the elementary schools, the middle schools, the high school, and how would you make an education system out of this as it unfolds? So they did allow me to do this and have a series of of charrettes and workshops with their planning staff. And out of that came a map with a whole series of push pins in it that showed if this area developed, here's where the schools would be. Here's what kinds of schools there would be, the requirements that it would take to kick off any particular school. And in Florida, Greg, being up to speed on schools instead of two schools behind all this is a huge competitive advantage. So we did many things like that. We invested heavily in economic development and did some early, what I call, bargain deals with certain employers, got them out here. And that began to develop an employment base, which you know we're very, very well located in doing so. We brought a private school out here, out of Door Academy, which is a nationally regarded college prep school. So those kinds of investments we made to seed things. I think the factor that I would point to that is most responsible for the success of Lakewood Ranch is the way that we financed it. We don't use short-term money for long-term investments. If you'll recall the savings and loan crisis, how many projects were financed with 90-day loans that would, quote-unquote, be renewed, trust me. And then when the economy... That's hard to believe. But true. Remember the... Yeah. how the cards fell and the dominoes fell mm-hmm. in, in those days. Oh, yeah. Well, 1994 was right after that had occurred. And we were concerned that we not to move forward until we had a good 
effective financing vehicle for this. And it turned out to be in Florida, community development district bonds and elsewhere would be special assessment district in California. I guess the buzzword is Melarus bonds. But the point of it is you basically spread the payments of these longer term investments over a period, which is much more likely to equate to the incoming cash. You you had to be one of the earlier and and larger users of of that sort of community development financing, bond financing, I would think. We were. And I think today we are probably one of the larger ones in the state of Florida anyway. I believe we've placed in the neighborhood of $600 million worth of that kind of financing in the market. That meant that we could build a lot. We could build a community up front. The customer didn't have to, quote unquote, trust the developer that, you know, after the first 300 homes, the clubhouse would appear or the landscaping would get better. We were able to build a community that was complete on the front end, that was good looking on the front end, that had the financial wherewithal to take care of itself and get better and better with the passage of time rather than decline and deteriorate. So that was a very important factor, the reliance upon that form of funding. Well, that sort of brings up the whole issue of future-proofing, if you will, when you're doing a large-scale project like this. That makes me think about the recession, and I'm I'm curious, you know, how decisions like that and other things you did positioned Lakewood Ranch to weather the downturn. And I understand your your business model changed somewhat, sort of, you know, pre-downturn and then and then post-recession. How did Lakewood Ranch get through the downturn, and and how did that affect your business model? All right, so let's go back to one of your earlier questions that involved being on the wrong side of I-75. Okay. In the eyes of the builder community, yes, we were on the wrong side of I-75. The Lennars, or in those days, it was the U.S. homes of the world, looked at us like we were insane. But the small local builder didn't have a steady source of lot supply thought we were utopia. And we had a system with them that we improved down to the individual lot. And we had probably, I don't know, at the peak, maybe 30 different builders that were on basically a de minimis takedown schedule. Uh, We didn't want to put a lot of inventory into the hands of people who couldn't handle it. We wanted to put the inventory in the hands of the end user customer. So basically, mm-hmm. we marketed to the builder, who in turn sold to customers. But it was basically, they were selling lots that they hadn't taken down yet. It kept their capital working to go vertical, which enhanced the amount of activity that we had, rather than tying them up and making them land poor. At any rate, that system worked very well. And at our peak in 2004, I think it was, we sold 1,000 units a year on that kind of a basis, which, I mean, believe me, when you're doing the individual lot improvement and you're improving 1,000 lots a year, that is a severe gastric disturbance. (laughs) Yeah. And 30 different. It's easy uh, to sell a big parcel off to, to one big national Oh, yeah. And a probably much bigger challenge to have so many moving parts. Well, it is. And, and I mean, the point of it is there's a lot of brain damage with that business model. But mm-hmm. that as it may, after the music stopped in the what I call the Great Recession or Great Dying, many of the builders with whom we had relationships just simply couldn't get capital any longer. I mean, it, it really changed the home building business. So here you go. With a lot of our um, customers didn't exist anymore. The only people sitting in chairs when the music stopped were the large national home builders. But by that time, we weren't on the wrong side of I-75. We had proven that you could sell a thousand homes a year and they became believers. So that part of the discussion was, was fairly easy. So we and you had some critical mass in place by then. Yeah, we had a crit- critical mass by that time. And, and again, the builders had watched us while they were in inferior locations and 
and really not selling as well as we were. So basically, the Nationals wanted a piece of Lakewood Ranch after the great dying. Then we hit upon the strategy of getting the heck out of the lot improvement business. And as you said, it is a lot easier, much less brain damage to and capital risk to sell larger tracks to established national builders who are capitalized and, and they can afford to carry that much property. It reduced the risk profile for our shareholders because we didn't have to keep as much capital tied up in the ground. You know, so our investment level was a little lower. We still put in the large scale infrastructure, the main roads, that kind of thing. And, and the builders then take the internal development on themselves. So that made it functionally easier for us, reduced our uh, capital profile, and also candidly increased our return rather significantly. So everybody seemed to be quite happy with the result. It's working very well. So one of the topics we've been kicking around, in fact, you and I have talked about this over the last year, is you know where we are in the economic cycle and you know if and when there's another recession we don't we don't know when that might be we just know you know given the timing of recessions we're probably you know closer now than we were a year ago are there lessons you take away from that experience that help you prepare for this next downturn if and when that comes well you know we survived the last downturn because of our financing mm-hmm. we didn't have to pay the loans that came due in a balloon. Our debt service was a fixed amount. As long as we made that, we were we were great. We're still in that position. In fact, we really don't have any debt any longer to speak of, nothing significant from the 600 million that I talked about. Very little of that is on our books or on our land. It's all in the hands of people who bought from us. So, we're not really exposed that much under this new business model in particular to a recession. It's not that I'm cavalier about it and don't care any longer, but I think we've really insulated our shareholders very well from economic downturns. Again, it can always get worse than you think. It certainly did in the uh, last one, but our, our financial health this time around and You know, as we've also talked, most people think that any new recession is not going to be real estate centric. Right. That having been said, uh, you know, that also is to the plus side. There'll be effects, but maybe maybe more moderate effects this time around. Yeah. Well, I want to touch on something that I, I said at the outset in the introduction is that, you know, although this is a big development with lots of moving parts, and you do do have a, a board and so on. I'm struck as somebody sort of looking in from the outside and that it gets to work with you guys now and then, that you're also somewhat entrepreneurial in, in nature and, and your approach to community building. And and I think you're also very innovative. And you know, a couple of examples that pop into my mind, I think that, that the core development that you're doing, you know, with, as a business center, the new uh, you know waterside place that you're creating is as kind of the key focal point of the 5,000 acres development that you're initiating in, uh, in Sarasota County now. That that seems to be, from the outside looking in, one of your biggest strengths. So you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about innovation, how you approach that, and sort of the entrepreneurial nature of, of your community building efforts there. All right. Well, first of all, I think that innovation, Charles Darwin had something to say about that. If you don't innovate, if you don't continue to evolve, you, the dinosaur, are going to be a fossil instead of a bird. That, I think, is very much true for any long-term, large, master-planned community. You can see all the successful ones have evolved as they've gone. Mm-hmm. We, you, know, you talk about how good our sales pace is. Well, this market, Sarasota, Bradenton, by comparison to a Tampa or Orlando or or many other uh, metropolitan areas, is really a backwater. And in essence, we are the Sarasota Bradenton market. I don't mean to brag, but that's basically true. But that's what you've become. You're you're kind of the leading edge now. Yeah. So 
to do that than to perform this well in a place that doesn't have that high a velocity in the first place, you've got to do some special out-of-the-box things. And mm-hmm. we have. You know, it keeps us at the forefront. It keeps, you know, what we try to do are things that actually add to the customer experience. And one of those is hallmarks of it has always been one form or another of lifestyle. You know, to me, this is not a project. It is a community. Mm -hmm. The difference between a project and a community is is the difference between a a square and a cube. You know, a, 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 a project is a nice place to go home at night, live there, you know, pull up your feet on your back lanai and have a drink. But it's not really the same thing as a community. Where we all come from, we've had social ties. We had places of worship. We had relationships with our schools. We had clubs. Uh, There's a whole third dimension that you have to pay attention to, and you can't create it. You can't send... uh, Julie on a love boat out on the, you know, through each of the neighborhoods saying, okay, gang, we're going to jog this morning. You have to set an environment which is conducive to allow them to establish and enhance that network. And, and I think that's what we've done probably as successfully as anybody else, maybe with the exception of the villages. You know, I think we've done a, a heck of a job in that regard. So is it fair to say you you have site plans and things like that, but then you also have a lifestyle plan that you're implementing and that helps to shape the lifestyle there? How would you describe the Lakewood Ranch brand? It's lifestyle. It's you come here, your roads aren't crowded. You come here, you have schools, whereas you go someplace else, you have to drive eight miles to find one. Parks are outside your doorstep. I mean, it really is a, a multi-dimensional community. We well, are uh, creating a very different amenity. So I, I sort of think about Lakewood Ranch 1.0 and Lakewood Ranch 2.0, or maybe it's 3.0 now, maybe even 4, looking at the just the, how long you've been there and, and, the, and the phasing of it. And, well, and you're, you're, you're cre- to add to Lakewood Ranch. I mean, we I just added four square miles. So it's a big place, and it seems that, you know, I mentioned on the whole conversation about innovation, it seems that what you're doing with Waterside Place and creating your newest village around creating this village center, town center kind of place, and it seems you're doing that in a different way. You're not just sort of following the model that other master plans have of, you know, creating a nice walkable town center and retail and residential, which is all, all great. But you're also introducing cultural aspects into that as well, which sort of seems to be taking it to the next level. I think that's visionary. Talk a little bit about how that's evolved and, and as sort of a, a new amenity focal point for Liquid Ranch. It's visionary, but it's also drawing upon one of the pillars of the strength of the area, too. If you stop and think about what comes to mind when you say the word Sarasota, certainly, you know, yeah, beaches, environment. But arts and culture figure very heavily into that. And it is basically also logical that being in Sarasota County, we too draw from the strength of this area and mobilize cultural and artistic resources to, I hate to say this, but help make the place, help create the lifestyle, help people engage in their community. So, yes, it's visionary, but, you know, it's all some things that are visionary are also just drawing upon the obvious that is right in front of you. And nobody has really done this that I'm aware of. If they have, I think I'd like to sit with them and steal their ideas. (laughs) Yeah, tell Uh, us what went wrong so we don't do it, right? (laughs) It's one of the wonders of of being in Sarasota. And... (laughs) I think that it's going to be a, a, a big hit when we open the doors. That's going to be exciting to watch. It's a great facet of lifestyle. Well, Liquid Ranch and, and all your activities at Trader Manatee Ranch, lots of moving parts, lots to get your arms around. You, you must have figured out some good ways of prioritizing your, your time. How do you do that? And how do you figure out what projects to focus on and, and, and what to hand off? And There's, Two 
modes that we all are in, one of which is, you know, we can sit, we can organize our thoughts, we can, you know, look ahead and calendar our, our priorities. And for those, you know, that mode, I really try, I'm, I'm a glass half full, actually glass three quarters full kind of person, mm-hmm. as opposed to glass half full. So I'm always looking to prioritize those things that provide the greatest lift for operation and our, our shareholders. But the universe is an awfully humorous and unkind place sometimes, and it hands you surprises every day. I can't think of a day that I walk in this office that my day finishes per my calendar. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. So there, what's that saying? Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, or something like that. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the universe has a great, like I say, if if you like order, the universe has got a sense of humor for you. (laughs) You know, so there you look at, well, gee, what's just happened to me, and does this outweigh any of the things that I had planned on working on? And it could be because it is a problem, or it could be because there's an opportunity. I mean, opportunities now walk into us more and more and more rather than us having to sit around the campfire and say, well, what should we create today? Other people that must have, be a nice place to be. Yeah, and it's, it's a great place to be. You still have to manage them. I mean, you know, one of these is the, the Brain Health Initiative. The folks from Harvard and in general brought to us. So I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. I, I'd love to, love to know more about that. It sounds like a really cool thing and, and nothing that I've ever thought of to be associated with a large-scale master plan community. How, how did that come about? And, and what is it maybe for our listeners? Associated with lifestyle, and that's, that's the point. But mm-hmm. back to the Brain Health Initiative, an analogy would be the Framingham smoking study that was done, heart study, yes, heart study. Mm -hmm. And it's 80 years old and still going. But it was that study that let us learn about, the the reason I got smoking in the head is it let us learn about the connection between heart health and smoking, among other things. Mm -hmm. You've got this other organ in your body called the brain. And it, too, has a lot of things that we have yet to discover. This initiative rather than treating diseases of the brain, is focused around understanding what a healthy brain is and how is it that we can either maximize that health or preserve that health. And again, it's a study, a long-range longitudinal study, which I hope will be continuing for the next several decades here. So if you look at it, and how, um, how do, so how does the community fit into that? That are are people in the community participating in the in this brain health study now? They will be yes. And, and in other words, they are mm-hmm. after I think three thousand or so participants to study on a long range basis over time mm-hmm. from even infants. Fascinating. So it's a big deal, and it's also one that is likely, in my opinion, to provide a lot of references in academic literature to the community Lakewood Ranch. Uh, I think it could make well, us a helpful thing. I think it could... And, and why did they want to be at Lakewood Ranch? Well, this is a strange story. Actually, they didn't initially. The person who put the study together just simply vacations here. Her mother is here. And she actually was about to select another community. They wanted a master plan community, but she just simply didn't want to be vacationing near where she had to work all the time. Basically, she had excluded us because she wanted to divorce her study from her downtime. Her mother actually kidnapped her. I'm being figured, I'm using the term figuratively, but... She tricked her to getting in the car, and she dropped her off at her information center. And things have gone downhill ever since. So she saw the scope and scale and said, actually, this is a microcosm, and I've got, you know, it's multi-generational and got all, all walks of life there. And Yeah, they, they really liked what they saw. So the tag team of 
uh, several Harvard researchers and Mass General are uh, about to kick this study off. Well, I want to ask a couple of questions about yourself. We talked a lot about the, the community that you lead, and I think it helps put your experiences into context. What's changed in your business career? You know, we, we heard about your early years and you're know, thinking about the last 10 years or so. What really are the big influences? Well, I mean, the, the largest influence in the last 10 years has been the economic downturn. You, you can't say enough about that. But again, it shows you that even a calamity can provide the opportunity for change. There's a day when the calamity is over and there's an opportunity at the end of that to come out of the bunker and deal with the dystopian world and rebuild society. And that's that, I think, is, is what we've done by way of analogy. You've enjoyed a lot of success. You've really built a very special place. You're clearly not resting on your laurels. What are the opportunities and challenges that you look forward to tackling? Well, you know, it's getting to the point where, like I said, I, I've had to expand the place. Now, what do I do? You know, it's kind of like, okay, I've caught the car. What do I do with the, the land that I've added to Lakewood Ranch? That'll be the real big focal point of my life once we complete Waterside Place. We've got a very extensive affordable housing initiative in Sarasota as well. That would probably be the second project. And then the third would be to give some shape and some future to the, the land that we've added. Mm-hmm. Well, as you think about your own role, we've talked a little bit about that. Some of the people listening to our podcast are wondering you know, how they can be effective leaders in their organizations. And I'm wondering, maybe somebody who's getting into a leadership position for the first time, what advice you might have for them? Well, I would say that the biggest thing is to recognize what leadership is. Leadership is not a one-way street where your coworkers worship you, more the other way around. Your job is to mobilize the resources that enable them to get their job done. Leadership doesn't involve driving people with a whip, you know, by whipping their backs. It's leading from the front and being able to do the same kind of things that they do just as well as they do. For example, here, we didn't get into some of our other operations, but I can drive a bulldozer if I have to. That helps me talk to people who do drive a bulldozer or forklifts or backhoes for a living. I get their job. They know that I do. I think it's very important to be able to understand what people are going through. And and the only way to do that is empathy. I mean, leadership, people will follow, but they're not going to be pushed. So again, for those who think the idea of sitting in a command bunker and sending everybody else out in front of the cannons is leadership, it ain't. It's just creating cattle fodder. So again, leadership being a two-way street, leadership being a team sport, Leadership is not about you. Leadership is about the thing that you are leading, the people that you are leading. So how did you come to that understanding? What kind of influences, what were some strong influences for you in you know, learning how to be a, an effective leader as you are? Well, when I was a kid, I grew up on a potato farm. And, you know, as young as 10, I was actually leading crews of, of workers and farm laborers and commanding their respect by being able to work as hard as they could. And, mm-hmm. and that, I guess I've always done that. So I've, I've not really had that much of a problem with leadership. And, you know, it's, it's if people know that you're on their side, that you're trying to take care of them as best you can within the operating parameters that you've got, again, people come along and they're, they're part of the team. I'm thinking that, you know, Lakewood Ranch, Lakewood Ranch seems like such a big place and so many moving parts. How do you keep your arms around all of that and continue to be as effective as you are? Well, you don't because you can't. So what you've got to have are people that you can allow to focus on those things. And then you talk to those people. A lot of it is delegation. By that, I don't mean fire it and forget it, but let people do their job. 
because mm-hmm. if you feel like you've got enough time in the day to do the job of everybody and micromanage them, I mean, it, it will just drive you insane. And, and candidly, you'll drag down the performance of the organization. Mm-hmm. So the point of it is recognize that too much is really too much and that you can't and go get some help. Mm-hmm. Well, professionally and personally, what would you like to do more of and or less of in in the year ahead? Even though I can do it, I really don't like to do administrative things. So I'd like to figure out how can I you know, shovel some of that off to mm-hmm. some other unsuspecting victim or victims in my organization. But it does come with a territory and you don't have to like mm-hmm. everything you do. You just have to do it. I really am looking forward to the new property that we've added, figuring it out, because that's really the roots of how I got here in the first place. So Mm -hmm. the ability to get back to that and breathe some life into what is currently farmland, that'll be a lot of fun. It's fascinating for me. It's a great intellectual game. So I would say that would probably be the thing that I'm looking forward to, unless we get into recreation, and I'd like to do a little bit of that too. Well, it seems in terms of the product that you've created there, the place you've created in Lakewood Ranch, that there's a big market for it. People obviously like it, and they're they're voting with their feet or voting with their pocketbooks to be there and invest in it. I'm wondering, if is that unique to Lakewood Ranch? Does that tell us something about master plan communities, that, that you know there's a future for master plan communities and for... You know, other liquid ranches or for, or for liquid ranch to, you know, continue adding acreage and and go on and on. You know, what do you, what do you think the future is for the master plan community concept? Well, I think it's the master plan community concept that has a great future. And I think that it takes, you know, they can only be done in certain places because it's very difficult to assemble a bunch of small parcels into something big enough to be an MPC. Mm-hmm. But Master plan communities give you the opportunity to do it right and to make it very rewarding for the end user. And I think it's really the way to develop. I mean, yes, infill is great, but you can only do five to 15 of them at once. And and that's not a big impact on the, on the market. Even if you take it all together, there's still a gap, still a need. When you look at lifestyle, when you look at creating a true sense of community that people can belong in, an MPC is the way to go. Well, one of your colleagues told me that you're kind of uh, known for seeing the, the chess moves ahead and, and being visionary in that way. One of the challenges of, of that, I would think, would be getting your team and your board to see that vision or share that vision and understand those those moves that you know create that future value. Would would you agree with that statement? And and how do you, as a leader of an organization like that, how do you bring the whole team along? Well, yeah, I do think that by and large, I can see further down the path than many. On the other hand, it hasn't been that big a deal to get the board in sync with this because, again, we started 30 years ago down a path of looking at this property in a long-term high quality, sustainable way. And the journey has, with them has been relatively easy. On the some of the team members, you don't necessarily have to share everything. You know, because we've got some people who are very good craftsmen at a smaller job, a very important job that they have. And you can share enough about the vision to help them get their job done, but you don't have to burden them with the whole picture. And candidly, I've never shared with the public or the politicians full vision of this place. You can't. If we would have shared the vision on day one with the regulatory community, they'd have killed this project before it got started. Because they can't. You think it would have scared them? It would have scared them to death. And the scale. Well, given the regulatory system also, if you want all your entitlements on day one, then be prepared for a lot of extractions on day one that are probably mm-hmm. going to be overblown, overstated, and create conditions that make it impossible for you to get financing because any intelligent investor would look at these requirements and say, 
it can be done. Well, it can be done because we're doing it, but you can't be doing it with the full upfront, let's just share with the world what we're doing because the world, as I said, can't handle it, never will handle it, and it's very Pollyannish to presume that they will, regardless of the quality of the plan. The numbers terrify people. Well, speaking of numbers, you had a great year this year and showed you know tremendous growth, and you've seen steady growth for a long time now. For the you know, really since the the end of the Great Recession, what does your crystal ball show you for 2020? Any predictions for the year and and for real estate? You know, and- a year ago, I probably would have jumped off a cliff, you know, because the the last part of December was dreadful. And I think that was due to the... Yeah, 2018, we, we, things slowed down quite a bit, December yeah, 2018. In the first two weeks of January, it was like we were the Maytag repairman. The phone didn't ring. <laughs> you know, we thought, oh my gosh, it's like 2008 all over again. But then sales picked up, traffic picked up, and actually exceeded, you know, January on a year-over-year basis. So, and it's been good ever since. So... I'm not seeing, you know, when you look for slowdowns, they happen, they don't happen because of an age. They happen because of a series of reasons. What are the reasons out there right now that one can point to that begins to suggest that the economy is going to slow materially? I'm hearing more and more every day of people looking for a sustained puttering along of what we have rather than you know, 4.5 months from now, we're going into uh, another crater. Yeah. I think that, again, this will keep going until it doesn't. <laughs> Let's I, hope that's not, a while then. <laughs> and that, that may be a while. But again, uh, yeah. you know, things happen, things change. I'm just not sure. seeing what the signs are right now that would can show the need for that kind of caution. Well, let's hope you're right. Rex, thanks so much for taking the time to be part of our podcast series. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you, Greg, and and thank you for the value that you and your company have helped bring to our community. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show. 